Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down and talk with Robert Hagstrom, CIO and Senior Portfolio Manager at Equity Compass and author of multiple top-selling books about Warren Buffett, including The Warren Buffett Way, and his new book, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind. Robert shares so much knowledge and wisdom in this podcast, we try to peel back the layers as to how and why Warren Buffett has been so successful. We also talk about other successful investors like Bill Miller and Robert's experiences in working with Miller when they were both at Lake Mason. For those looking to learn from other great investors, this episode will certainly be worth your time. Thanks so much. Please enjoy this discussion with Robert Hagstrom. Robert, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Well, great, guys. Thanks for the invitation. We're going to talk about a lot of different things today. Uh, Warren Buffett, his investment philosophy, how to become a better investor, what we can learn from Buffett, and just your overall experience and knowledge um, in the markets and you know with Buffett specifically. But I wanted to start with your very first book, uh, The Warren Buffett Way. And this goes back to 1994. So I was a senior in high school. I did not know who Warren Buffett was at the time. Um, but, and, and I, I didn't do, I maybe could have looked around a little bit more on this, but was this the first, was your book the first big book on Buffett or was there some, was there something before? Yeah, well, it, the, the very first book that included a chapter on Warren Buffett was written by a guy named John Train, a uh, great, great writer since past. He wrote a book called The Money Masters. And in that book, there were chapters on Warren, Ben Graham, Peter Lynch, uh, John Templeton, Phil Fisher. He then, John Train, then in the late 80s, wrote a very tiny book called The Midas Touch, which was about Warren Buffett, but did not ask permission to write the book from Warren. And it wasn't a well-received book. And then my book came out in 94. And then the one, which is a great book, a biography book, uh, was Roger Lowenstein's book came out in 95 called Buffett, The Making of American Capitalists. But I guess you would say ours is the very first big book that came out. Yes. And Buffett wasn't nearly as popular then as he is now, because obviously there wasn't a lot of writing about him. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a household name for sure. Well, he certainly was popular within the, you know, the value investment community. I would say certainly over the last 20 years, his popularity certainly has exploded. And I would say more so on a global basis. Um, He is now more popular, I think, on a global basis than he's ever been. Our royalties from the books, which is now in the third edition, we're now in 18 foreign languages. Uh, The royalties from the book now are far greater in foreign royalties than they are in U.S. royalties. Huh. Wow, that's awesome. How did you get Lynch to uh, write the forward? <laughs> I've never been asked that question. <laughs> and it's a great story. And that was the first question. I went, well, this is going to be fun. All right. So you have to understand, I was, I, you know, I, Warren didn't know me. I didn't know Warren. And, and I sent him a letter and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about writing this book. May I have your permission to, um, to quote you from the annual reports? As you may know, the, the Berkshire annual reports are copyrighted. The only CEO annual report that is copyrighted. He wrote me a very nice letter back and said something to the effect, Robert, thank you for your kind note. I can't give you permission just yet, 
Well, you guys being in sales know that just yet's not a no. It just means what do we got to do to get this done? And the deal was that I would, uh, uh, you know, send each chapter to him and his secretary, who's his secretary today, Debbie Bazanik. I think she was a teenager back then, would call me on the phone. This was before Internet, you know, and, and, and say, you know, you're doing fine. Just keep going. And finally got through the book and um, got the copyright permission. And my publisher, Miles Thompson, was best friends with a guy named John Rothschild. Now that name John Rothschild may not mean anything, but he was the co-writer, almost the ghost writer for all of Peter Lynch's books. So Miles asked John, hey, do you think, you know, Peter might do an introduction to the book? John calls Peter, Peter calls Warren Buffett <laughs> and says, Warren, there's this kid named Robert Hagstrom who wrote this book and they're asking me to write the forward to the book. And Warren said something to the effect, you know, you know, the kid's fine. You know, he did a good job. Do whatever you want to, Peter. It's up to you. And so that that led to Peter Lynch, you know, writing the forward to the book. And, and if you go back to the original edition, 1994, big, huge picture of Warren Buffett. And, uh, you know, and it says the Warren Buffett way. And at the top, it says Peter Lynch, forward by Peter Lynch. And at the very bottom on the far right side, and you know, about a, a millimeter high is by Robert Hagstrom. So oh. they definitely knew how to mar they definitely knew how to market the book properly. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's like you get this little like one font at the bottom right hand corner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the fact that you asked the you know you asked kind of Buffett's permission or asked him to review it, I think is. It kind of reminds me of um, that's probably very important to him because it reminds me of the story where Lynch tells the story that he gets the call from Buffett and Buffett wanted to use the quote. Uh, this is from one up on Wall Street selling your winners and holding your losers is like cutting your flowers yeah. and watering your weeds. So, yeah. so that was, uh, you know, and, and Lynch couldn't believe at the time that he was getting a call from Buffett on that. So I think that asking of permission is seems to be important for Warren. Well, it, it, it's a reflection, Justin, of, of kind of Midwestern values. You know, you do ask permission. You do things the right way. Uh, you behave yourself and, and you behave well. Good things will happen to you. So that, that's a characteristic of Warren, no doubt. We've had a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot. We've had a few uh, people on the podcast, like Lawrence Cunningham, who I, I believe you know. Yeah, great um, guy. Yeah, I know Larry, Larry well. <laughs> super good guy. And then we've also recently had Adam Mead, who wrote, the complete yep. uh, history of Berkshire Hathaway, another great guy and a super um, meaty book. Um, but we like to kind of, you know, ask this question of, of Buffett scholars is, you know, what do you think if you could kind of boil down the characteristics of what makes Buffett like a great investor? Well, how would you, how would you summarize this? Well, that, that, another great question, because I thought I had the answer down pat for about 20 some odd years until, uh, uh, you know, about three years ago in 2017, when Warren introduced the concept of a money mine, which led to me writing the, the most recent book, Inside the Ultimate Money Mine. And so I think as all people who study great investors, me including and studying Warren, we're all trying to figure out the methods. How do you pick a stock? How do you think about a stock as a business? What are the investment tenants that are associated with a business? And that was the Warren Buffett way. It was a method book on how to pick stocks according to Warren Buffett. And, and we didn't even talk about portfolio management. And then, you know, two years later, I wrote the Warren Buffett portfolio, which was the very first book on focused investing. Because at the time, um, everybody was talking about, oh, I, I think about stocks as businesses. And, you know, I like to buy good companies run by good management and they generate a lot of cash, blah, blah, blah. And then you look at the portfolio and there's like 100, 200 stocks in the portfolio. And the turnover ratio is 100% per year. 
And I'm going, well, I'm not sure that's the right portfolio strategy. So we wrote the Warren Buffett portfolio that got into focus investing. Here again, a method book. Today, it's not called focus investing. It's called high active share investing uh, that was, you know, introduced by, you know, guys named, you know, Kremers and uh, Martin Kremers and Pettigisto and, and guys like that. So we all spend all our time on, on methods. And, and so it's kind of like if you want to swing the club like Tiger Woods, you know, figure out the methods. If you want to swing the bat like a you know all-star, figure out the methods, the mechanics. But but and that's important. You've got to do that. You've got to understand that. But the, the, the second part, equally as important, is temperament, what he calls the money mind. And it's a philosophical architecture of how to think about the world of investing. And it includes things like self-reliance an Emersonian philosophy that he learned from his dad. It certainly includes rationalism. Uh, people who are rational do the things that work and keep on doing them. It includes pragmatism, you know, to do things that are, you know, to find out what, what is working now and gravitate to things that are working now. It includes stoicism, uh, which he learned from Ben Graham as a stoic attitude towards markets, and on and on, behavioral finance from Charlie Munger. So there's this whole temperament architecture that, that makes up the, the backbone that gives you stiff resolve to apply the methods in the market because even applying the methods in the market, the market's crazy. It's always going into different tangents and up and down and sideways. And if you don't have that temperament, that, that philosophical resolve about how this works, the methods alone are not enough in my judgment. This might relate to the next question, but do you, I know your background is, your education background is, I believe you majored in political science. Yeah. So you, you weren't, you know, coming up through a finance track um, nope. in your education. And you wrote a book called Investing the Last Liberal Art. And yeah. I, I want to sort of ask you to sort of talk about, we're kind of pivoting a little bit here, but but talk about the, that, that idea. And then also maybe, you know, the idea of maybe getting an education in liberal arts might be be good in a lot of ways because you're exposed to all these different disciplines and i'm i'm sort of trying to relate that back to what you just said about the money mind and how maybe a liberal arts or that kind of uh philosophy if you will can benefit would be a ben benefit to that this like money mind type of idea you're talking about well you know i absolutely do believe a liberal arts you know education is extremely valuable there's an old cliche that, that said you know uh, <clears throat> liberal arts is, you know, for the middle ages, it's not until you're middle aged that you understand how valuable it is. And, and the reason why I say that is that most of the graduates that come out of, of college today are specialists. And, 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 and maybe that's the right thing to do because they need to get a job to, to pay back the debt for, you know, going to school. And so they're economist specialists or accounting or finance. And so they they, they, they study and become proficient in a narrow band, which assures that they will get a job as soon as they get out of college. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the rational way to thing to do. But to solve very big problems, uh, you have to be multidisciplined in your thinking. And, and lo and behold, it was Charlie Munger who introduced the concept of lattice work, uh, the lattice work of mental models to achieve worldly wisdom. It was a a lecture that he gave um, in, a, in a business class at USC in 19, I think it was 1994, 1995. And, and they made the argument that if you basically took the major mental models of each of the major disciplines, you would have a better understanding of how the world worked. And so after I wrote the portfolio book, Warren Buffett portfolio in 98, 99, 
um, the next book I wrote was actually the Investing the Last Level Art, where I took Charlie up on his words and I said, okay, if we started with physics, what would we learn? And, you know, that's the New Newtonian world and, and, and largely based on modern portfolio theory it takes a very Newtonian viewpoint of the world, but it's more biological in nature. And so, you know, you study Darwinism and, and I was very fortunate at the time to be friends with a guy named Bill Miller and eventually went to work with Bill Miller at Leg Mason Cap Management. That name it should be familiar to most people. He's the only guy that's ever beaten the market 15 years in a row when he ran the famous value trust. And Bill introduced me to the Santa Fe Institute and I spent a lot of time out there studying what's called complex adaptive system, which are things like ant colonies and your immune system and things like that. And it also happens to be stock markets and the economy. So you learn a lot there. Bill, doing his graduate work in philosophy, gave me a lot of insight into uh, the philosophical teachings of William James and pragmatism and Wittgenstein and language and things of that nature. And then you go on to, you know, uh, psychology and uh, behavioral finance, and then you can go into mathematics and the problems of non-stationary data and how to think about averages. But we kept going, you know, how to read books and, and, and reading uh, and, and then ultimately decision making. And we did a second edition that, that even brought it out further. And lo and behold, I absolutely do think that when you think in multidiscipline terms, you're able to see descriptions differently. And the world is made up of a lot of different descriptions and the world is compatible with many varying different descriptions. But to the degree that you can understand uh, markets from a multidiscipline aspect, you're gonna have a lot greater insight as to what's going on or what may be going on in the future. So it was it, it, one of the most enjoyable things that I have ever done in my life is being uh, studying a multidiscipline approach to markets. It, it's been terrific. That's great. Thank you. And by the way, uh, Bill Miller is just crushing it lately. He's come back big time. <laughs> it, it's crushing it. You know, if you go back and look, you know, his Lake Mason Opportunity Trust Mutual Fund, which is now 20 years old, I think he's in the top 1% for, you know, every year for 20 years. I yeah. mean, he's just, he, he's an incredible, incredible investor. Yeah. Um, I just, my last question before I hand it back over to Jack is we're kind of going to come down to the methods now a little bit. And I wanted to ask you if you could just briefly talk about, you know, you kind of broken Buffett's strategy down into four, you know, different basic categories. You have the business tenants, financial ten tenants, management and valuation. And I was wondering if you could just yep. hit on, hit on each one of those, um, real yep. quick and, and describe what you're talking about. Well, all of those tenants, uh, we, we, we divided them into four categories, but everything that was written, so the, the main categories that you just defined, Justin, but everything in the subtenants was written in the Berkshire Hathaway in a report. So if you go back and read all the Berkshire Hathaway reports, he talks about what makes for good businesses. He talks about simple and understandable businesses. He talks about businesses that, you know, have favorable long-term prospects and things of that nature, which talks about, you know, competitive advantage period. In management, he talks about rationality. Um, here again, a key concept and in, 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 in Buffett's way of thinking, and it has to do with the rational allocation of capital, avoiding the lemming-like attitudes of imitating each other or other companies just because they're doing things. Honesty, forthrightness, and things of that nature. And the financial tenants, the tenants were all as, as a business person would want to have them, which is how much cash is coming out. So we talk about owner earnings, return on invested capital things of that nature, margins and, and, and issues. And then in the valuation, you know, Warren in 1987, you know, pivoted from the factor-based models of Ben Graham, low PE investing, which he'd already been doing for 20 plus years, but finally went vocal with it. 
and said it had nothing to do with low PEs or high PEs or low price to book, high price to book, dividend yields. And it, none of that matters to valuation. It's all about the cash and the discounted cash flows of the model. And, and so that was the architecture of the methods. And then what we did in the Warren Buffett way was, all right, if, the, if this is what you're telling us, Warren, and these are, these are the these are the major tenants and the subtenants. Then we went back and looked at the very beginnings and we looked at, you know, Washington Post and Geico and Cap Cities, ABC, on up to Coca-Cola and American Express. And lo and behold, they, you know, they, as you would expect, they, they just lined up perfectly. Um, and so the book's success was basically taking Warren's major purchases and showing people from the major purchases, yes, in fact, what he's been telling you for the last 20 years lines up in every one of his major purchases. And, and 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 that was the essence of the Warren Buffett way. So you know, one of the things while he did, and you may pivot off this, the, 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 and Carol Loomis talked about this when we did an episode with Yahoo Finance. If you really boil it down into one thing, and I know I I boiled it down to two things: methods, and 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 temperament. But she said, you know, if there was just one thing to identify Warren Buffett is think about stocks as businesses. Now, as simple as that sounds, right? It, it, so, but if you live that literally, right, if, 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 you know, there's no stock market, there's no stock prices, you're, you have all of these options out there available to you, and you're going to go into business, and this business is going to reflect your net worth and your family's net worth, what are you going to think about? And those are the investment, the Warren Buffett investment tenants. And so it's from a business person standpoint that he sees the entire world. So that's a key concept too. Yeah, I wanted to I want to go back to something you talked about at the beginning. You know, one of the most interesting things I've seen about when you talk to people who have written about Buffett is their interactions with him directly. You know, we had Adam Mead on the yeah. podcast and you know, his interactions were he was sending chapters to Buffett as he was going and you know, Buffett yeah. I think was dictating letters to his assistant who was then emailing him back to him and I was just wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about you've written about Buffett several times now. So I was wondering if you could talk about your interactions with Buffett throughout writing these books. You know, it's, we don't we don't have an in depth, and it's funny, you know, uh, and you know, me did the right thing, which is you know, disclose, disclose, disclose to Warren. He doesn't want to be surprised. And essentially, every chapter that I sent to him, he never made any changes. Um, which, and, and 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 I'm glad because it wasn't that I was dreaming this up. I, bas- you know, it's Charlie. So I'll give you a story. In, in 1998, when we came out with the, you know, the um, Warren Buffett portfolio, they used to ask Charlie, you know, what books are you reading? And at the annual meeting that time, he said, you know, what books are you reading? He goes, well, you know, I read that book by Hackstrom, The Warren Buffett Way. I didn't think very much about the book. He didn't really do anything brand new. Of course, the blood is draining from my face when I'm about to faint. <laughs> Thankfully, he goes on to say, um, yeah, but I, I like The Warren Buffett Portfolio because he broke new ground. And we did. We did a lot of new things in that book that hadn't been done before. So th- I tell you that story is because when I sent him the chapters, I basically basically took his words, his architecture from all his annual reports and just organized it in a different way. Somewhat like Larry Cunningham, we talked about Larry earlier, you know, Larry Cunningham's essay uh, on on virtue is great because he organizes it topically, you know, by different things. Well, all I did was just organize Warren's writings for that 20 some odd years as how he thought about business from these different major tenets. So there was nothing new or creative. So I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that there wouldn't be any changes because I basically played it right down the middle of the fairway. And, and so my interaction with Warren was very simple. I mean, you know, as I said, Debbie would, uh, you know, would uh, you call and say, you know, you're fine, keep going. I've got a couple of letters from Warren up on my wall that I'm very proud of that, you know, were written and, and, and he was thankful for the job that I did. I met him in New York 
at a Capital Cities ABC meeting um, the year after the book was published. And, you know, from time to time, maybe I've talked to him, you know, Jack, maybe a half a dozen times, believe it or not. I, you know, it's funny, Debbie taught me very early. She goes, if you want to have a long lasting relationship with Warren Buffett, don't waste his time. If you need something from him, make it quick, make it short, make it succinct and get off the phone. You have no idea how much he has to do each and every day. And even when I wrote this last book and sent it to him and stuff like that, our communication was very succinct, very tight and, and, and very, very pleasant. But we don't we don't sit around and, and jabber about the, the market or sports or stuff like that. We're not best friends. We're just uh, professional acquaintances. And, uh, you know, it, that, that was more than enough for me. I can tell you that. I want to ask you about the overall concept of value investing. So, you know, many people yeah. who follow value strategies tend to get trapped in this, you know, I'm going to buy low PE stocks or I'm going to buy low price to book stocks. And at the beginning, you know, Buffett was a Graham disciple and Buffett was a deep value investor, but he's evolved so much over the years, you know, to, to, to the point that he's now buying, you know, technology companies and you know, he's, he owns yeah. a big position in Apple. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about the evolution of his strategy over time and how he got from the beginning with the Ben Graham type approach to where he is now. Great question. And, and, and in the new book, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind, we have a chapter three that's called The Evolution of Value Investing, Jack, and, and it actually does walk you right through it. So, you know, he learned the basics, what, what I would call classic value investing from Ben Graham, which was to measure what was current, what was tangible. So it was current book value, current earnings, current dividends, and, and buy things that were statistically cheap. And, and that worked amazingly well, uh, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Unfortunately, by the time Warren had taken control of Berkshire Hathaway and was starting to buy businesses, he found out that statistically cheap stocks always didn't make for great businesses. And it was, it was you know, Charlie Munger that kind of moved him off the pivot there and said, you know, better to buy a, a good business at a fair price than a cheap business at a great price, right? You know, so you, let's think about the business. And so he bought C's Candies which, you know, he thought he paid up for it. It ended up being a phenomenal investment. And, and through the experience of starting to own better businesses, he found the characteristics of better businesses, which moved him to what I call the stage two value investing, which is reflected in the, in the Coca-Cola purchase. So, you know, go back to 87 and, and, and he bought Coca-Cola, put a third of his portfolio, a, a 33% bet of his portfolio. That's a big time bet, a billion dollar bet that over 10 years went up 10 times, went, went to 10 billion and the S&P during that time went to 3 billion. So, you know, the question was, was that a value proposition? Absolutely was. But here's the, here's the you know, the knock. Coca-Cola was trading at a premium to the market multiple. It was trading at a high price to book value, below average dividend yield. And at the time, you can go back and look at the the media reports, everybody was howling, saying, you know, you've turned your back on the master. Ben Graham never would have bought Coca-Cola, never would have, you know, gotten near it. Well, he obviously saw something of extreme value reflective in the cash flows, return on equity in the share repurchase program that Roberto Gazzietta, who was the CEO at the time, had put in place. So he moved to stage two, which is, you know, business valuations and cash flows. Stage three um, is exactly what you said, Jack, moving more towards network economics into technology. And, and as I said earlier, I had this great opportunity to study with Bill Miller, not study with him, but actually manage money with him. He managed the big value fund. I managed a growth fund for him at the time, applying the Warren Buffett methodology to growth stocks, because my argument was that Warren actually had become a growth investor, but he just understood how to value growth companies. But Bill was the very first one 
that started buying technology stocks. You can go back and look at Bill buying Dell Computer and AOL, Amazon and Google on up the ladder. And, and it was thought that maybe Warren wouldn't get to the stage three, but when he, bet, uh, when he made the bet in 2016 on Apple, he saw two things. Apple's really a hybrid because in many ways it's like Coca-Cola, the handset being like Coca-Cola. But the network business, the, the ecosystem of the Apple iOS operating system and how it interacts with all the other hardware devices and Apple Pay and Apple Health and the app stores and things like that, you know, that was the crown jewel. And, 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 and so, you know, a $36 billion bet turned into a $136 billion bet, which is 25% of the market value of the business. So how did he get there? I would argue it was pragmatism. I mean, you know, he basically moved from classic one to classic two because pragmatically he had to do that. And I would also argue that he made it to the stage three value investing because pragmatically most of the value that's being created today is in these new network economic technology businesses. And he finally got there. You know, you got to think this guy, 86 years old, made that bet. And, and, and how phenomenal was it for him to have lived at a time with Ben Graham, then getting to Coca-Cola, and at 86 years old, still willing to make one more move in his thinking is just quite phenomenal. And it tells you a lot about uh, how incredible a thinker Warren Buffett is. Yeah, you know, all of us get so trapped in our investment strategies. You know, you see guys that are deep value guys for their entire career, and they, they'll never shift yep. no matter what they see. I'm wondering, what do, you, what do you think it is about him that he's been able to do this? I mean, you see so many successful investors, and then when their strategy goes out of favor, they just can't, they can't pivot. But he was able to pivot. I mean, what is it about him that made him be able to do that, you think? Well, you, you, you've hit on two very, very important components, which is, I go to these conferences in the years past, and I'm tired of hearing a value investor tell me, as soon as value returns to the market, my performance is going to get better. And I looked at my performance over the last five years, and I said, well, my performance is doing just fine, and I'm a value investor, so what's your problem? And the answer is, Jack, is that they have a narrow viewpoint of how to calculate value. So imagine a, you know, a low PE guy could have never bought Coca-Cola, right? Or even someone that did you know, uh, you know, uh, consumer staple businesses had a hard time with technology. But there are some that actually have been able to evolve. Phil Fisher, who wrote, uh, uh, his son, Ken Fisher, wrote a forward, uh, uh, kind of a forward to the third edition of the book, uh, I'm sorry, second edition of the book, talked about his dad reflecting upon Warren. And he said Warren had this ability to evolve, pragmatically evolve to always what was working. And, and I can't tell you how important that is. The, the really successful investors today that have been doing it for decades, I guarantee you they've evolved. They have pragmatically moved to what is working versus the other investor who's trapped in what would be a correspondence theory of truth, which is they have some viewpoint about how the world works or how value works, and it corresponds to a defined way in which to think about something. They never can move off of that. Whereas a pragmatist like Bill Miller, a pragmatist like Warren Buffett looks around and says, well, what's working? You know, what? So William James, the father of pragmatism, says, what is the cash value of the idea? And really, if you follow the cash value of ideas and investing over time, it almost requires you to continue to evolve because the cash value of ideas and Apple uh, in these last 10 and 15 years have been so obvious that the pragmatist would eventually get to Apple looking at the cash value of that idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Bill Miller, and I wanted to ask you, you were able to work with him. And, you know, there, there may not be anybody who's defined, redefined value investing in the way that he's done it. Um, you know, he, he no. was able to see things like Amazon as a value when almost everybody else saw them as an expensive growth stock. 
Um, and I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk about what maybe you learned the most from working with Bill Miller. Well, you know, he has the same kind of money mind temperament as Warren, tr tremendously rational about most everything. He understands what works and what doesn't work, and he, he, he focuses on what works and is not distracted by nonsense and, and, and a pragmatist. He actually did his Ph.D. work, absent the dissertation at Johns Hopkins, which is, you know, kind of the hotbed of pragmatism, a, a big disciple of William James, Charles Sanders Pierce, John Dewey, the rest. But it's interesting that so... If you think about Warren, Warren says, I'm a better investor because I'm a business person and I'm a better business person because I'm an investor. And Justin and I were talking earlier, the key component to Buffett is really that he looks at stocks as businesses. Well, Bill basically began to evolve. When he started Value Trust, it was very much a, uh, with Ernie Keeney, it was very much a, a, a classic Ben Graham, low PE type of portfolio. And as Bill took on a bigger role, he began to emulate the Warren Buffett methodology of cash and things like that. But it was Dell Computer that actually created, I think, a, a pivot in his thinking. He bought Dell Computer 94, 95, I guess 93, 94, and it was trading at six times earnings, which is how all PC stocks were trading at six times earnings. You'd trade them at six and you'd sell them at 12. And so it got to 12 times earnings and everybody bailed out of Hewlett Packard and Gateway and, and, and Dell, but Bill kept Dell. And then it became about 25% of his portfolio, and it was trading at 45 times earnings, and everybody thought he'd lost his mind. But what Bill discovered by getting into the guts of the business, so he's not looking at factor-based accounting methodology. He said, what's the return on invested capital? Okay, Dell Computer was the very first company to ever generate 100% return on invested capital. Never had been done in the history of capitalism. Never, right? So if you remember back in the old days, uh, well, you know, basically the model there was that Dell was able to grow the business on the account receivables of its customers. You would order a computer in the old days, you'd call up the 1-800 number and say, I want this monitor, this keyboard, I need this much speed, this much memory. And they said, fine, uh, we'll ship it out to you in two or three weeks. And uh, you said, that'd be great. And they get your credit card. You gave them the number. That money is in the Dell bank that night that they didn't have to pay the supplier over 30, 60 days. And so as long as the orders kept coming in, it didn't require any capital to grow the business because he was using the receivables of the business to grow the capital of the company. So when it became 100% return on invested capital, was it worth more than 45 times earnings? Absolutely. If you do the math on it, anything that's growing at 15 to 20% per year at 100% return on invested capital is worth a lot more than 45 times earnings. So Bill, that, that episode in his life began to help him understand that if you follow things pragmatically, how they're evolving, it will help you understand how to make the right decision. Everybody else was trapped in that correspondence theory of truth that it's a low PE, high PE world and you, you know, buy and sell. I tell you that long story because that basically helped him understand Amazon. Amazon, when he bought it, he bought it on the IPO, sold it a year later at a double. Then in 99, right before the technology crash, you know, made another huge bet in Amazon and everybody thought he'd lost his mind. What happened? Well, when we went to go see Jeff Bezos, um, you know, and, and, and the, the, the descriptions of Amazon at that time was, well, it's Barnes and Noble. So if you look at Barnes and Noble and look at its price earnings ratio, its price to book and things like that, then you look at Amazon, you go, well, you have to buy Barnes and Noble. It's much cheaper than Amazon. So you should basically buy Barnes and Noble and sell Amazon. Well, that didn't work out too well. 
And then when Amazon basically began to do more than books and it did videos and then kitchen appliances and nothing, oh, no, no, that's Walmart. So what you should do is go long Walmart, short Amazon. Well, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> but when we met with Bezos and Jeff met with, with Bezos, um, Bill said to him, what's the business model? And Jeff said, it's Dell. And it was like, we're home free. We know exactly what's going to happen, right? The world was describing Amazon as Barnes and Noble and Walmart. Bill described it as Dell. Amazon was the second company in the world to ever generate 100% return on invested capital. <laughs> so when you figure that stuff out, you know, as Bill did, and I was so lucky to be on his coattails riding along, learning all this along the way, you look at the world and you go, the market has this viewpoint over here and it's wrong. And I have a viewpoint, which I think is right. Then he had the courage, confidence, and self-reliance to make the bet. And, and if you look at all great investors, that's what it is. They have a variant perception of the market. They have the confidence in their viewpoint and the self-reliance to make that decision independently and bet it accordingly. And that's how a lot of money is made. It's interesting. Uh, William Green's new book, he, he talked about Miller a little bit. And, you know, he was talking yeah. about because of the amount of Amazon Miller was buying, you know, he thinks he's the second largest shareholder. He's the largest shareholder whose name is not Bezos. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think, I think that's probably right. He still has $9 Amazon in Opportunity Trust. Uh, when we bought, when it, you know, crashed in 2001 and 2002, Bill kept buying it and uh, owns it personally and had it in Opportunity Trust. He still has $9 uh, Amazon on the books, uh, which I've seen before. And what's interesting is we don't have to talk about the merits of Bitcoin, but, you know, he, he now says that his Bitcoin bet is worth more than his Amazon. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. amazing that he's been able to identify these things, you know, well in advance and see the world in a way other people don't. And, you know, he's benefited a lot from that. Well, and, and I think that, you know, that says a lot about, you know, mispricing. Um, you know, now Warren would say, you know, polling does not replace thinking. You don't take the contrarian bet on everything, you know, because <laughs> sometimes, you know, the, the contrarians, you know, are wrong, right? But, uh, you know, Bill kind of thought it through. He, when he sized the Bitcoin bet, though, at the very beginning, it, it wasn't a billion dollar bet. It was a very, very, very small bet. The, the trick of him accumulating such wealth is that he just never sold along the way. He gifted some along the way, but he never sold his position. But as a size bet, you would be staggered how little money, but you know, he was buying it when Bitcoin was 600 bucks, 400 bucks, and, and just was able to compound that money and, and, and did terrifically well with it. But those are different thinkers, right? And at the heart is self-reliance. I, 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 you know, if I, if I could have done anything differently in my life, I would have overdosed on Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays of self-reliance. And because at the end of the day, every investor has to look at themselves and go, I'm making this bet. This is my bet, my decision. I don't care what the market is doing. I don't care if the market agrees, disagrees, it goes up, it goes down, this, that, and another. This is my decision. You stand by your decision um, and you hold stead for it. And, and then Graham's stoicism is you just take this indifferent attitude to the market doing whatever it's going to do up and down, you're not enslaved to the market anymore. You're independent and self-reliant on your own analysis. That's Warren Buffett and that's Bill Miller.
I think you just alluded to something that is probably one of the greatest traits of great investors, which is the fact that he didn't sell. You know, it's so yeah. hard as a human being, like, you know, you see these charts on Twitter of Amazon's run and all the money you would have made if you owned Amazon from the IPO. But what you don't see is the 90% decline you would have taken along the way and the 80% decline. And, you know, the, the difficulty of holding your money when you're up a thousand times your money. I mean, that's really, really hard. I mean, I think that would probably be a common characteristic of these great investors is their ability when, they're, when they have conviction to stay with it. You know, and listen, you know, he had substantial net worth in Bitcoin that just went down 50%. <laughs> and I, I'm highly confident he did not sell any Bitcoin. And now it's back up, you know, uh, another 33%. You're right. I mean, there is this, you know, conviction, but compounding is this wonderful thing. If you really understand the essence of compounding, most of the money is made at the end, not at the beginning. And most of the money that makes you a billionaire, and, and you know, a lot of people say that, you know, I don't have the math completely right, but, you know, Warren has made, you know, 90% of his net worth in the last 20 years, right? So when you think about how to make $100 billion, you know, it was $10 billion, $15 billion in the 1990s, right? And, and then all of a sudden, when that compounds and compounds and compounds, you know, a lot of wealth is made, and that's not lost on Bill Miller, and that's not lost on Warren Buffett. The really, really big money is not selling a compounder early in its cycle, recognizing its impact to your net worth 10 years, 20 years down the road if you hold steadfast. That's a totally different mindset. Your point about self-reliance reminds me of what we were talking about before the podcast started, which is this you know, huge amount of cash Berkshire has on the balance sheet and you know that basically not being put to work to add value. And yet Buffett uh, is you know, sort of sticking by that decision because he's not finding value in today's market. He is buying back some of his own shares, which we know they've loosened up the criteria on that. But I just wanted to ask you if you could kind of, because you in the Warren Buffett portfolio, you kind of talked about this idea of concentrated investing, but Buffett kind of marries this concentrated investing with this, I guess, market timing yeah. concept. Um, well, yeah, I mean, he, he has a funny quote. Uh, you know, it, it was actually after the 2008 crisis and, and then the fall of that year, you know, he loaded up on all the financials, you know, his Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, you know, he was into it big and, and making some very, very large bets. And a lot of people said, you know, geez, Warren, what are you doing? This is nuts. And, uh, you know, how do you know when you're going to get paid for this or if you're ever, and he goes, listen, I don't know time. I know price. And, and what he was, it's a reflection of a Ben Grant quote, but basically he says, if, if you know, you've got a good value proposition, uh, you don't worry about the timing of it. You know, the timing will come around. You know, if you've got the price right on your value proposition, that's all you need to know. Then, then you let, you know, Father Time figure it out. And it eventually figures it out. As, as Graham says, Mark's the great weighing machine and it figured it out for you. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know where I'm leading with that, but the fact that each in investor has to make their own and bet. As Warren says, Listen, I don't talk to a lot of people about what's going on in the market. I don't talk to a lot of people about, you know, what I'm doing other than Charlie Munger and Ted Wexler and Todd Combs, you know, that they, they share lunch once a week. He says, I'm not giving my money to anybody else to, you know, invest. So why would I, why would I care what they think about anything? It's my decision, my money, you know, my bet. And that's just, that's a totally different mental construct. And the really, really great investors have that, you know, they have it. It's my bet, my confidence. I'm going to make the decision and I don't care what the headline is. I don't care what the market is doing in the short run. It's my bet. I'm making the decision. That's a level of self-reliance that if you can reach that level is the key to being a successful investor. 
I, I was just wondering, you had mentioned before, um, like your style of investing is like taking this Warren Buffett style of investing and applying it to growth companies, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I thought maybe if you want to spend a minute or two talking about maybe some of the investment criteria that you look at, maybe it's return on invested capital, but other criteria that are important to you in your investment process. Well, it, it is, it, it's kind of a blended portfolio of some classic stage two value investing. So let me back up. Our, we're a global growth portfolio. I mean, um, Tom Russo, who basically um, is a Buffett uh, kind of disciple, he, he, he managed money at Sequoia Fund, ran his own shop, was the very earliest one to get into taking the Buffett methodology into the global marketplace. And, and it's tremendous long-term track record. And he really had a lot of influence on my thinking that, and maybe this is some of the political science background, is that when you begin to look at demographics, and demographics are highly, highly predictable. If you, if you ever want to know what is the best forecastable variable that you ever need to look at, just look at demographics. It will tell you what's going to happen next. And, and, and it was very clear that uh, the demographic change that was going on in the United States, even starting you know, 20 years ago, relative to the dem demographic change that was occurring overseas in the global markets, growth was going to pick up speed much faster overseas than relative to the U.S. And, you know, today, 7 billion people, you know, 95% of them live outside the United States. So one, we did want to own growth, but we wanted to be in the largest total addressable market, which is the global market. Then you begin to think about who are the major players, growth players in the global market. And, and what I think we've done well with our global leaders portfolio is blend some conventional consumer staple type businesses that are the, like the Coca-Colas, but those are the Nestle's, the Unilever's, um, uh, the Diageo's, the Heineken's, which kind of serve as a balance in the portfolio with some Bill Miller stocks. And, and so, you know, we've had Apple, we had Apple in 2014. Of the 25 stocks that we own today, 15 of them we've had for seven years. So we were able to blend technology. We have Amazon. Um, I've been very fascinated with enterprise software businesses, Salesforce, ServiceNow, which could be the next trillion dollar businesses. Um, and, and we've owned Qualcomm for day one. So we're able to blend some technology businesses with some classic consumer staple global businesses to create a balance in the portfolio. So when the other growth guys are getting swung back and forth, the balance of our consumer staples position is able to keep the portfolio kind of driving down the middle and it's working out really well. It's, it's a nice blend. So it's, I would say it's a Warren Buffett meets Bill Miller type portfolio. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, you know, that ability to sort of look at a company relative to its intrinsic value and not necessarily say I'm this type of investor or this type of investor, that, that's something I work on a lot myself because you know, I tend to get trapped in that. And you know, I think that's, re that's really important about you know, be, being an investor is, is saying like, I, I want to buy a company for less than it's worth. You know, I don't have to necessarily be this or this or this. Yeah. Well, I think it, I'm, I'm gravitating more and more that we all know that cash is important. If you don't have cash, you're not going to be in business very long. But if you were to say to me, what's the next most important thing? It's return on invested capital. Because the valuation differences between a company that earns its cost of capital, which means it doesn't matter how fast you grow, if you only earn your cost of capital, you're a market multiple. It never changes. But the magnitude of value creation that accrues to companies that earn 40%, 50%, 100% return on invested capital relative to a company that earns 10% return on invested capital is just mind-blowing when you do the math. 
then 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 the only thing else you have to worry about is the accelerator, right? It's sales growth. So if you have cash, you have high returns on invested capital, the next ingredient is sales growth, right? And if you've got a double digit sales growth, then then you're home free. I mean, it's just wonderful. Then the question is the competitive advantage period, right? How long does this last? How long do I have a company that generates cash, earns well above the cost of capital? How long does that last? And that has to do with two things. One, the competitive part of the business, who am I competing against, but also the total addressable market. So now I'm back to the global market. Do I want to be in a business that can sell its products and services around the world to 7 billion people, or do I want to be in a U.S. domestic business that only sells it to 360 million people? Well, you know, it's a no-brainer. You want to be a global investor, and so that's that's how we think about it. We're looking for global businesses, generate cash, earn above the cost of capital, and have the ability to compound that by sales growth for a long period of time. My my experience is the market misprices those businesses, and perhaps it should, right? Because there are not many companies that actually can do that. But if they can do that, they're worth a hell of a lot more money than you think they are. And so when you go, oh, it's 40 times earnings, that's expensive. You have no idea how cheap that is if they're going to earn that type of return for the next 10 or 15 years. If they do that, it's worth a hell of a lot more than 40 times earnings. Yeah, well, I mean, companies like Amazon certainly taught us that, that you, you can't use those, you know, if you're going to get that kind of growth, the multiple doesn't really matter all that much up front. Um, yeah, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, on, you know, respectful of your time, Jack. Here's, a, here's the trick on Amazon, right? And, and Jeff Bezos walks you right through it. Amazon generates tons of cash every single day. Every quarter, you can go through the quarterly report with Jeff Bezos. He goes, here's my revenues. Here are my expenses of online, AWS, advertising. Here's my cash. Now, before I either drive it to the bottom line and pay tax and get my EPS number, or should I put it back in the business that's growing at 20%, earning 100% return on invested capital, what do you think I should do? Well, the rational person would say, Jeff, just you keep it. <laughs> you just keep all the money and whatever you need, you keep it and you keep compounding it. That money though, right before he reinvests it back into the company, has a free cash flow yield higher than Procter & Gamble. Okay, when you understand that, Amazon's very cheap. It's a very cheap business. It's just on an accounting basis, gap reported accounting basis. It's 90 times earnings, but I don't want him to bring any money to the bottom line. I want him to pre-tax it back into the business to compound it. I don't care if it's 100 times earnings. If you understand the business and the economics of the business, you go, Jeff, you just keep the money and you just keep compounding it. And oh, by the way, online retailing is less than 5% of global retailing and you're the number one in the world at it, you just keep it all and you just keep going. And I'm going to have a fun time riding along with you. That's all you need to know. I just had one more question before we come to the end here. Um, you know, so many people have said, you see a lot of people who say Warren Buffett has lost his touch, you know, and they look at the returns at the beginning and they look at the returns now and they see they're a lot lower now. And, and they say, you know, is, as he lost some skill and, and obviously size is a huge part of this. I mean, for any of us to try to produce the returns Warren produced at the beginning on the, the size of a portfolio he has now, I mean, we, we, it's just impossible given the universe, I would think. But I'm wondering, do you, do you think he has lost anything or do you, do you think he's, he's just as good of an investor now as he was at the beginning? Well, you know, two things. One is you're a different person at 90 years old than you are at 60 years old or 40 years old. All right. So th th we know that. Second of all, and Jack, you hit it, it it's different with size. And, and, and he's talked about this for decades. It's harder, harder to move money, even though, you know, turning $36 billion into $136 billion with Apple is size. And he did it extremely well. It's just that we need two or three more Apples out there and hopefully he'll find it. 
Um, but I think you also have to remember that Berkshire is a different animal than someone's mutual fund or maybe even someone's, you know, SMA. It's that he has he has a a responsibility, a personal responsibility to ensure that nothing damaging long-term happens to Berkshire, which creates a conservative attitude towards it. Because, you know, half of that business is going to go to charitable foundations, you know, it, it, and it's people's families are wrapped up in it. And I think he takes that to heart in such a way that he'll forego um, a, a profit opportunity if there isn't even but a small chance that it could work out badly. Because if it works out badly, he's harmed people, foundations, and others. And I don't think he just wants to bear that. He would rather continue to earn uh, good returns with as little risk as possible. He's willing to lay down big bets when he thinks there's very little risk as there was in Apple. But he's not going to be pressed into making bets if he doesn't feel like he's got that right ratio of really good return with minimal, minimal, minimal risk to the downside. And that keeps you out of a lot of card games. Um, and, and, and that's how he personally feels about Berkshire. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but that's kind of the way in which I conceptualize it. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So for the last question, we wanted to ask you this, based on your long-term experience in the markets, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? Um, patience. And, and I know that's an overused word in the value investing. I don't know why it is that we think we have to make constant decisions every hour, every day, every week, every month, every quarter. Light, you know, the markets are not going to pass you by. Wealth is not going to pass you by. If you're patient in making your decision and the decision has been made by all of its constructs, when all that comes together and it's time to pull the trigger on an investment, you never look over your shoulder wondering had you made the right decision or the wrong decision. Because if you have that little bit of doubt, self-doubt, you're never comfortable with the position. You end up selling too soon and you're not able to compound it over time. Warren has made tremendous amounts of wealth by patiently investing in good opportunities. This rush to make as much money as fast as possible in the shortest period of time, I'm not sure that that's uh, the right recipe for compounding wealth over time. So patient decision-making, just take your time. It'll all work out. That's great. If people want to learn more about your firm, uh, your strategies, um, I don't know if you're on Twitter or not, um, where can they find out more about you? Equitycompass.com uh, is our firm and uh, it'll go through our, our people, our process. It'll go through my portfolio. We welcome you. Uh, Give us a call, give us an email. Uh, love to stay in touch. And uh, certainly uh, Jack and Justin, I appreciate this opportunity. It was a great conversation, great question. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.